Welcome to the Jimmy Neville Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Joseph Nowinski. Dr. Joe is an internationally recognized clinical psychologist and author. He has written books on a variety of topics. He is currently an assistant professor at the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. His past positions include assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, associate professor of psychology at the University of Connecticut, and supervising psychologist at the University of Connecticut Health Center. This episode is full of interesting statistics and studies around 12-step recovery. I learned a lot here, and I hope you do too. Let's get right into it. Dr. Joe, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your name came up in a conversation I was having with Dr. Berger a couple weeks ago, and I was excited to reach out to you and ask mm-hmm. if you'd be willing to come on here, and you agreed. So, yeah, I'm super excited sure. for the conversation. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about your history and what, what got you interested in the science behind 12-step recovery? Well, sure. It's kind of a long story, but I'll make, try to make it short. A uh, uh, long time ago, I was uh, uh, in charge of substance abuse treatment programs at a psychiatric hospital in Connecticut, both adolescent and adult tr- programs, inpatient, outpatient, both, and uh, had a strong interest in, in it. Uh, I decided that I needed a little more training, and I went out to a place called Hazelden Foundation, uh, and spent time out there at a, what's called a professional in residence program, and uh, learned a lot more about about treatment model. Learned about twelve step recovery that I really didn't know anything about prior to that in my training. Uh, and then I was uh, after a few years doing that, I was invited to develop a twelve step oriented uh, treatment program, outpatient treatment program, for a major uh, research. Uh, project called Project Match, which was a, and still is the largest psychotherapy project ever conducted. And um, of course, I was surprised and pleased to be invited to do it, and I jumped at the opportunity. So I developed a, an outpatient treatment program called 12-step, I called it 12-step facilitation. <laughs> and, and the name comes from the fact that didn't feel comfortable calling it therapy because 12-step facilitation, the goal of it is that it's, it's a therapy, so to speak, it's an intervention, but the goal is to get the client involved in a 12-step fellowship uh, like AA or NA. And as time has gone on, to be honest with you, I think that that applies to some other f- similar fellowships. Uh, involvement in any kind of fellowship that that promotes abstinence from substance use and uses group support to do so. Uh, there's one called uh, Women for Sobriety out there, for example. Uh, there's another one for people who are agnostics, uh, agnostic AA, uh, and there are other uh, fellowships out there. So TSF uh, was aimed at uh, AA, frankly, mostly because it was so available. I mean, it's available internationally. Uh, it's easy to find on the internet. Uh, it's very diverse. Uh, and since I started work on that back way back in 1990, AA has become even more available, more diverse through the internet. So, uh, you know, I support, uh, I think TSF, 12-step facilitation, can be used to facilitate involvement in any kind of fellowship, AA, NA, Women for Sobriety, Agnostic AA, as long as the goals are the same, which is to support people in pursuing abstinence from substance abuse. So um, I got involved and uh, developed uh, 12 step facilitation, and it was compared to two other treatments, one called motivational enhancement therapy, and the other one called cognitive behavioral therapy. And that study lasted seven years and followed almost 2,000 patients and it was called, it's what's called a randomized clinical trial, which means people sign up for the study and they're randomly assigned to one treatment or another, okay? And, uh, and then 
the outcome is compared. And that's called, considered sort of the gold standard for research because it's not biased. People are randomly assigned to one treatment or another, and then the analysis afterwards compares how effective they were. And I was very happy after the study to find out that 12-step facilitation was generally about 10% more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy. And that lasted over three years. And uh, after the three-year mark, 12-step uh, facilitation was significantly more effective, say, than manual, uh, motivational enhancement therapy. And uh, in fact, that those people who were assigned to TSF, as they call it, uh, were twice as likely to be sober uh, over that period of time than people who were assigned to the other treatments. So, <coughs> in some ways, the results of Project Match were a little bit of a shock to the research community because they really tended to think that other treatments like motivational enhancement therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy would work better. Uh, so it was a little bit of a shock to find out that 12-step facilitation, in fact, was better. And since then, um, there's been a lot of research using 12-step facilitation. That opened the door to a lot more research on AA or 12-step recovery. Before that, there was virtually no research in, in it, um, partly because the major research centers weren't that interested in it. They were interested in other approaches to treatment. I understand that. But after the outcome of Project Match, the door opened to a lot of research, and I've been involved in some of that research uh, in terms of sort of uh, tweaking 12-step facilitation, if you will, you know, coming up with, you know, more and more uh, some somewhat variations of it, incorporating some, some other uh, aspects of treatment. Uh, I've consulted to a lot of those, and so I've been involved in it ever since. Uh, for a pretty long period of time. Yes, yeah, so I guess this interest got you to write write the book called If You Work It, It Works, which I think was back in 2015. Mm -hmm. if, and uh, what, why'd you choose the title, If You Work It, It Works? Well, that my, uh, my, my editor and I <laughs> came up with it together. Uh, he actually contacted me because he was aware that he was at Hazelden Publications and he was aware that uh, I've been involved in ongoing research you know, with 12-step facilitation at AA and that um, I was involved in some of these studies and other studies I was just sort of consulting uh, to them. And he said, you know, there's been this, all this research been done since the original project match. It's been like almost 20 years and there's been all this other research done and uh, he made a good point. He said, you know, all that research is kind of buried in professional journals. Uh, you know, that's what researchers do. They, they do their research and they publish it in professional journals. And the general public just doesn't have access to that. You know, they don't, they don't have access to those journals. Uh, they're expensive. Uh, and they, the average reader doesn't even know how to interpret those studies. So he said, Joe, what about, uh, what about organizing all this research and writing a book that summarizes it all in a way that the average reader could understand, as opposed to having to have a PhD to understand the research? So, you know, I, I said, I, that sounds like a great idea. And so I uh, set about doing it. It took a lot of time to organize all of that research, you know, and, and sort of, you know, put it in a structure, if you will. Uh, which is in the book. So basically the, the book explains that traces, uh, there's still ongoing research since I published the book, by the way, but uh, it sort of organized it into different categories, like what, what do we know about AA uh, by itself? What do we know about treatment that's aimed at facilitating AA? Uh, what do we know about uh, things like, is, important to get a, is it important to get a sponsor for AA? Is how how soon uh, is there a is there a role that spirituality plays in recovery? Uh, what's the uh, implications of uh, a, a substance abuse problem for uh, cognitive functioning? And is there an impact on brain functioning and so forth? So all of that is in the book, sort of organized in a way 
that the average reader who's interested in learning more about does AA really work uh, can learn a lot from reading the book. Yeah, so this is a topic that has interested me a lot, whether or not there have been studies done. And at one point, I spent some time doing some research online trying to see what all there was out there. And I was not able to find much. I was able to find like two or three studies. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, cool, there's two or three studies. And look through them. But as I was reading through your book, I mean, there's tons of studies. And they're, they're long studies. I think the fir- one of the first studies you mentioned is a 16-year study. And it, it seems like they, a lot, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is very clear that, I mean, there's some nuances in there that we'll talk about, but that, that you know, 12-step recovery works. Um, so yeah, going into writing, oh, go ahead. No, that's true. I think that, that you're absolutely right. There's a lot of research. Again, as I said, but most of that was published in, in journals. And researchers, frankly, they don't see it as their responsibility to then go out to the public and explain, you know, the research. They, they, they're content to do their research and publish it. So it, it, it took, you know, in a sense, my editor and I to say, well, let's, let's dig deeper. Let's, let's pull that information out and present it to, to, so that it can be understandable. And the book starts out with what those naturalistic studies, like you just mentioned, uh, that don't have to do with treatment, like like twelve-step facilitation or cognitive behavioral therapy. They just what those naturalistic studies do is they they follow a group of people who had alcohol problems, and then they divide them. Let they let the the clients or the subjects, if you will, make their own decisions about what they want to do. And that 16-year study, which is, was uh, really important, uh, allowed people to choose three different paths. One is that they could they could go to AA uh, and not not go for treatment. Uh, two, they could go for treatment and not go to AA. Or three, they could do both. And that was up to them. They could choose whatever they wanted to do. And then the researchers who were out of Stanford followed these people for 16 years, which is really important. Uh, as you point out, because you can, you can learn a lot from following people for 16 years. And what they found was that, uh, that the people who uh, opted for AA and treatment together at the beginning did the best uh, of, of, of the three groups, which is important information to know if, you know, say as a psychologist, I'm working with someone who's got a drinking or substance abuse problem. I can tell them with confidence that we know from 16-year research project that if you do both, if you go for treatment and stick with AA, you're going to have a much better chance of staying clean and sober. Uh, the study also found that, interestingly, if, if at any time in the 16 years some the people stopped going to AA, they were more likely to start drinking again. So that, that's important, too, to know that uh, it looks like if you if you choose AA or another fellowship, like I mentioned before, it seems like it's really important to stick with it. Um, now, not everybody goes to five meetings a week in AA, but people who say they have five or, or ten years of sobriety still report that they go to one or two meetings a week, you know, and staying involved like that seems to be very important. Uh, another long study like that, another longitudinal study, uh, again, let people choose what they wanted to do. They could choose to uh, go to a lot of AA meetings at first, okay, for the first, say, six months of recovery. They could choose, they could choose to go to, like, two a week, okay, or they could choose you know, not to go at all. And that study followed people for seven years, not four, but seven years, and found that that people who uh, chose even to be moderately involved in, in, in a fellowship like AA, say a couple meetings a week, uh, <clears throat> had an 89 cents, 89% chance of staying sober. Uh, people who really got heavily involved had a little better chance of, of, of staying sober. But the point is that even some moderate involvement, you know, uh, seemed to really be associated with staying clean and sober. And there were other studies like that that I cite in the book. Yeah, it makes me wonder if 
people, like the reason people choose not to work a 12-step program, because a lot of the time I think it's, I think people know, like it's pretty clear that if I do this, it will work, but something inside them keeps them from doing it. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that's questioning whether or not it will work or if it's just the fact that they're not ready or they don't want to stop yet. Well, I, th I, I think it's both, Jimmy. I think that um, to some extent there's a lot of skeptics, as you might know, out there about AA. There's a lot of people who are just skeptics. They think it's a cult. Uh, you know, they think it's a religion. Um, and again, there were other ones out there like Women for Sobriety and Agnostic AA where you don't have to have any religious belief at all. So there's just some skeptics out there who, who are suspicious about it. And again, they don't maybe know any of this research we're talking about, so they don't know that it really works. They tend to, uh, sometimes you, you listen to accounts, people sometimes post on, you know, different websites, and they post having a bad experience. They'll say, I tried AA and it didn't work for me. Uh, well, of course, it's true. There are, there are some people it, it doesn't necessarily work for. It's never, I mean, no one's ever claimed, I wouldn't claim it's 100% effective. But the research suggests it really is pretty effective. So there's those people who are skeptics. And then there's also what you just pointed out, not ready. And there are people who are, a lot of people just remain ambivalent about, what, about their drinking. You know, and some level they may be, they may either don't think they have a problem at all, uh, or they don't think it's that bad. So that they don't really feel like they want to quit. They're ambivalent about it. They keep thinking, well, maybe I can have a couple drinks a day and I'll be okay, you know? And so that, that ambivalence, I think, uh, keeps a lot of people from uh, walking through the door and, and going to an AA meeting. Uh, and frankly, there are, there are programs out there that advertise that, that advertise, you know, you don't have to quit. Uh, you know, we'll help you cut down. Uh, I guess my point of view is if, if that works for you, that's fine. You know, if you're able to cut down on your drinking uh, and you're able to maybe drink once or twice a week and you don't have any problems with it, that's good for you. But most of the people who end up going to a fellowship like AA or Women for Sobriety have already tried that. You know, they've struggled with that. They've struggled to cut down, they've struggled to control it, and they haven't been successful. Uh, but sometimes people cling to that ambivalence. <laughs> they cling to maybe maybe this time it'll work. Maybe this time I can cut down. Uh, people do that with drinking. They do that with smoking. Uh, you know, they try to convince themselves that I can control this, and uh, so that's part of the reason that people can hesitate to to give it up. Yeah, back to that 16-year study. One of the other conclusions you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that those in the group that only decided to go to treatment, that mm -hmm. tried AA at a further point down the line, mm -hmm. did not do well. Like they had a real negative attitude about AA. They thought it encouraged dependency. Right. And I, I thought that was interesting because I guess from the outside looking in, um, it, it does seem like people develop like a negative attitude if they're not involved in it. Yeah, I think it's that, you're right, it's that skepticism. I think you're right about them, that's the Moose and Moose study where they, at the outset, they, people had the choice of what to do. And then they followed them over the 16 years. And what they discovered is what you said, that those people who chose not to go to AA basically had a skeptical attitude about it. And, you know, uh, I have to, you know, going back to when that study began, uh, there was not much research, as you pointed out. There was not much research out there, so it would be difficult to point to something to somebody who was skeptical and say, "You're, you're, you're wrong. The skepticism is misplaced. It really does work," because there wasn't much to point to, except people's personal bias or accounts that you would read, uh, you know, on on different websites and saying that I tried it and it didn't work for me. I, uh, I didn't like it, you know, and so forth. Well, that's true. There are some people who didn't like it. And so 
uh, that contributed to that skepticism. And you're right, so those people who tried it later probably just had a negative attitude about it to begin with. And if you have a negative attitude, you know, you want to say, I'm not like those people, I'm not that bad, uh, the chances are you're not going to stick with it. Yeah, the, um, and, and something that I talk about a lot when people say, you know, I tried it, I didn't like it, is something, another quote that I pulled from one of the studies in your book is that all meetings are not created equal, and I always mm. encourage people to, you know, get out there and, and try a bunch of different meetings because you might find one that you do like. Um, you might find one with people in there that you can relate with that you, that you do like, so... Um, you're, but yeah, I know I mean, you're absolutely right about that. And so, uh, typically, when you do read somebody who posts something on uh, social media <clears throat> about how AA didn't work for them, usually it turns out that they didn't give it much of a try. They went to a couple of meetings, they didn't like it, they didn't feel that they could relate to the other people in the room, uh, and so, or that they weren't that bad. Uh, and so they, they just walked out. But I think that's that ambivalence again. You know, people, they just don't want to necessarily identify with other people who have kind of lost control of their drinking and need to quit. And they don't want to sort of identify with that group of people. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, today, uh, you can go onto a website like Everything AA and, and you'll see all kinds of meetings listed all over the place both in-person meetings and, and remote meetings. And uh, that's one outcome of the pandemic, I think, that um, initially when the pandemic hit, uh, people I knew who were in recovery were upset because they said that there weren't many in-person meetings because of, because of COVID, you know, and uh, that, was, that was a problem for them. They, the meetings that they were used to going to were canceled. Uh, but what's happened since then is that there's been this proliferation of online meetings um, all over the place. And so now, if you go online to AA or to something like Everything AA, you can find all kinds of meetings and all kinds of resources. So you're right, when somebody says, I went to a meeting and I didn't like it, uh, I usually, I interpret that as ambivalent about having to quit. And I say, well, why don't you try some online meetings? And it's interesting because I have clients now who uh, they go online meetings in Ireland and California and all over the place, you know, and they and they attend these meetings by Zoom, and they also attend some in-person meetings locally, but you know they have this whole now network of of people who are like them and staying sober, and it's kind of international. Yeah, you mentioned the self-identification part. And it reminded me of one of the studies you mentioned where the people in the meetings that refer to themselves as a recovering alcoholic right. tended to do better than those that identified as just an alcoholic. And what I was wondering when I read that, because generally you see people with more you know, time in recovery that refer to themselves as a recovering alcoholic. And I was wondering, like chicken or egg, like which one of those comes first? Well, I'm, guessing, I'm not sure which one comes first. I think, I think the longer someone's involved in a, in a, in a fellowship is the more that they are identifying themselves as a recovering person. Uh, could be a woman who gets involved in Women for Sobriety. The longer she's in there and the more she's following their program and they have uh, their own program, uh, which like like Alcoholics Anonymous is basically a program for, it's a, for a different lifestyle, a sober lifestyle, if you will. And so then they tend to identify with that, that group and identify themselves that way. The study you mentioned was conducted in, in England, and it was interesting because it did ha ask people to identify themselves um, as I'm an alcoholic or I'm a recovering alcoholic. And <clears throat> the reason the, the, the researchers were interested in this partly because of uh, like you said, some people feel like the word recovering is, is, a, is a stigma. To, you know, oh, I don't want to say I'm a recovering alcoholic because it means I have this terrible illness and so forth, you know. Uh, and yet what that study found 
was that people who identified themselves as recovering alcoholics uh, not only were more likely to stay sober, but what we call the self-efficacy scores were higher. In other words, they asked them that self-efficacy is a measure of, I can solve my problems, I have the, I have the tools necessary to solve problems in life, I can, you know, I have self-confidence and self-esteem. <clears throat> when people identify themselves that way, we say they have high self-efficacy because they believe in their ability to deal with problems. Uh, and the researchers wanted to know if people say they were recovering, was that in fact a negative thing? <laughs> you, you know, was that something that meant that they had this little lifelong illness and they, uh, and, and they, they wouldn't have self-confidence? It turned out to be the opposite. So that those people who identified themselves as recovering had higher self-efficacy scores. They believed in their own ability to, to solve problems and so forth, more than the people who just thought they were alcoholics. Uh, so that sort of debunks the idea that if you identify yourself as a, as a recovering alcoholic, it's a, it's a stigma. It seems to be the opposite. Yeah, that's definitely one of the big things you hear come up. You, you'll hear people say they don't want to do 12-step recovery because of the word God being used, and then you'll hear it because I don't want to identify as that. I think it's a negative connotation, but this is something that Dr. Berger and I also talked a lot about is it's not, I don't, I, in my opinion, it's not a negative thing at all. It mm -hmm. is recognizing and identifying like what, what is to be true, which is that, you know, um, I'm a person that, you know, has more obsessive thinking. I have more compulsive behavior. Um, by default, I'm more self-centered and that by identifying that and stating it, not only am I able to, um, identify better with the newer members, but I'm also reminding myself that, hey, I, I, you know, this, this is something that I need in order to keep myself in check. And it's not a bad thing. Like, it can be used as an asset. Um, I still have the addictive tendencies, and I use them in mm -hmm. ways to benefit my life now. And, but, it, but it needs to be, uh, you have to keep an eye on it, <laughs> you know, or it can, it can also well, become a problem. You're absolutely correct. And and interestingly, the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous and other programs that I mentioned has to do with admitting that you've lost control of this. You're, you know, you're, you, 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 your own willpower hasn't been enough to, to, to stay clean and sober. Um, and it's interesting that that first step really parallels what, what psychotherapy is all about, by the way. That going way back to Sigmund Freud, the idea is that, um, that change begins with insight that it's when you have an insight into yourself, that's when it opens the door to change. If you don't have the insight, you just keep bumbling along, you know, the way you always have. So, I mean, so once somebody can recognize that, that insight that I have an addictive personality, that opens the door to change right there, okay? But as, but as long as they're ambivalent about it or they want to deny it or they don't want to even contemplate that, they're just going to go, go along the same way. Usually they're going to keep doing the same thing that they've done with the same negative outcome. Uh, you know, so, you know, uh, you're absolutely right about that, that that insight is vital. And those people who have had that insight, or you might even call it an epiphany, that I realized that I can't control this. So I might as well accept the fact that I can't control it, so what am I going to do now? So, and that's where the fellowships come in. Yeah, so as you were writing this book, was there any, like, big shocking things that you discovered? Or, um, like, from any of the studies? Well, well, the, I, well, I, I learned a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I was, you know, following a lot of these studies, this research. I was consulting to, 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 to many of them. But I, I didn't necessarily connect the dots. And so... Uh, I guess what hit me was just kind of how overwhelming the research was, you know, and that uh, despite all that skepticism out there, this wow, this these fellowships really work, um, and it's, and if you just can, if you can just take that first step and realize that what you've been doing hasn't worked, uh, and that maybe you should consider something different, that wow, it really is powerful. Also, the, the long-term studies 
really were eye-opening too to me when I really delved into them, realized, wow, this like, uh, you know, if if you there's another study out in California from uh, 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 the Kaiser Permanente system out there, and they 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 took people into Kaiser Permanente who had a substance use problem. It could be alcohol, it could be cannabis, and uh, the only thing they required, they put into a 15-week treatment program, is that they go to one meeting a week, whether it's AA, NA, anything, any one meeting a week. That's what they asked them to do. And then they follow them also for like seven years. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, what they found was that the more meetings people went to, the longer they stayed sober, period, even after treatment. So they, treatment ended after 12 or 15 weeks, and then they followed them, and lo and behold, those people who stayed involved in a, in a fellowship were likely to stay sober seven years later. So that, again, was kind of really eye-opening as to, wow, these... It's just kind of connecting to this fellowship and identifying with other people who are pursuing the same goal. It's very, it's very empowering. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other interesting findings, one of the things that stuck out to me um, when I was reading your book is that a person's motivation prior to treatment does not impact their chance of success. Yeah, uh, what the people the one that's correct one study uh, out of Stanford they out of the VA system did that they uh, they asked they asked people at the beginning uh, how ready they were are they were to change and then they put them into treatment and it turned out that that didn't predict outcome and they were really kind of surprised they figured that you no know, you have if you're ready for treatment you're going to do better. It uh, didn't seem to go that way, and they, then they reflected on it, and the conclusion they reached uh, was that treatment actually changed people's attitude. Uh, so no matter what their attitude was when they started, that as they got into treatment and started to get sober, uh, their, their motivation, if you will, their, their readiness, their willingness increased. So, so it was actually treatment that changed their attitude. It wasn't attitude that, that, that determined treatment outcome. And that's an interesting hypothesis, and I think they're probably right. Yeah, I, um, I, current, I went through treatment a bunch of times, and I also worked in a treatment center for about three years. And one of the things I noticed uh -huh. is that the people the people that seem like they're going to do the best. Now, this is just an opinion of mine. The people that always yes, seem yeah. like they were going to do the best, like they, they spoke up first in the meetings. You know, they were telling everybody else, like, this is what you got to do. And they were, you know, gung-ho about recovery. Right. Um, those people didn't seem to do as well as the people that you were, you would, you know, um, the, that you didn't think were going to do great. Um, the more quiet people who were more difficult to deal with, um, and, and obviously, like this isn't. Um, there, there are exceptions to this for sure, sure but um, right. it, it seemed like that was the case a lot of the time. Well, you bring up a good point because the the what what the research shows, and that was like you're talking about, sort of like a, an, an insight for me, was that it's the involvement in in the fellowship and identification with with the fellowships that make all the difference. You can go to a lot of meetings, but if you don't identify with the people in the meetings, if you continue to think that you're different than they are, that maybe, you know, uh, you know you're know, you just sort of showing up, but you're not identifying, you don't get a sponsor, for example, uh, and you don't read, you know, you don't read things like the big book, uh, you don't really identify with it, then that your outcome is not gonna be as good as somebody who simply begins to, like we just talked about a few minutes ago, be, really begin to identify with that. I once had a, a, a woman client who uh, had a drinking problem, and I, I suggested she go to an AA meeting, and she was resistant for the usual reasons. I'm not that bad. I don't, not, I'm gonna, I don't want anybody to know who I am and stuff like that. She came in for the next session with me 
and she was like a different woman. I mean, she said she went to this meeting and she realized, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> she said, I am an alcoholic and I need to be here. Uh, it just hit her, like this huge insight. And uh, she had a great outcome. I mean, she just got involved, she went to meetings, uh, she got a sponsor, she read things like the big book, uh, she got into dealing, doing daily meditation, she really embraced the program. And you're right, so some people who can even go into treatment, uh, that doesn't mean that they're, uh, it's what happens after treatment that, that often counts. You know, you read these stories about different celebrities, for example, who go into rehab. All right, and they may be movie stars, or they go into rehab. And my reaction when I read that story is, well, it's what happens after rehab that counts. You know, they, if they go into rehab and 28 days later, if they come out thinking that they're cured, uh, they're 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 sadly mistaken. You know, and so it's what happens after. It's, it, it's the identification. It's the involvement. It's the feeling like I belong here. This is where I belong in this recovering community. That makes all the difference. And you're right, some people, they can go to rehab, but they don't, they don't embrace it like that. Yeah, there was something you talked about that we touched on a little bit earlier in the front of your book, kind of the standard versus intensive referral to meetings um, from you know, like a counselor at a treatment center. And I was, I was very interested in, in how much that impacts the success of a patient, you know, the level of referral to a 12-step fellowship. Yes. Yeah, I think that was a study done by a researcher named, a woman named Timko. And uh, what she was interested in, again, was we know that there's a, plenty of, like, therapists or counselors who will suggest that somebody go to AA, but that's it. That's all they do, is they suggest that, you know, I think you should go to AA. Um, but she wanted to compare that sort of like kind of weak in intervention, if you will, just suggesting that somebody go to AA, to what she called intensive AA, where the therapist really gets much more involved in discussing AA with the client and really tr tries to encourage it much more than just a simple suggestion. You know, and, and we'll, we'll go through, we'll either go online or whatever and go through a meeting list and say, why don't we pick out a couple of meetings you can go to and let's follow up, let's see how you, what, what did you think, what was your experience like? So she called that intensive, which is true. It's more than just suggesting AA. And indeed, they found much better outcome when the therapist played a more active role, which is what they do in 12-step facilitation. My it's, the therapist is very active in 12-step facilitation in explaining concepts, what AA is all about, um, in helping uh, talk about people's ambivalence about going to AA, uh, talk about uh, what is a sponsor, uh, trying to facilitate going to meetings and talking about what was your experience like and working through any negative experiences the person might have had, you know. So in 12-step facilitation, the therapist <clears throat> is very active in encouraging uh, In fact, the, the, the therapist gives out what they call recovery tasks. Uh, this week, I want you to read this material. I want you to go to a meeting and then report back and so forth. So what she found in that study was that the intensive referral was much more effective. Yeah, and as you know, one of the common things you hear at 12-step fellowships is it's a program of attraction rather than promotion. And what I'm thinking right. when you're talking about this is, like, what, how, in your opinion, what is the best way to, if, I mean, if you were in a position where you were um, giving <coughs> someone an intensive referral, how could you do that yeah. without, without promoting well, that's, that's a really important issue because uh, I do believe that it's a program of attraction and that 12-step uh, facilitation or this intensive referral study that you mentioned, they still are based on the idea that, that getting somebody exposed to a recovery fellowship 
will make it more attractive to them. Bottom line, they have to feel attracted to it. They have to feel like to get comfortable with it and feel that they belong there. Uh, I'm not in favor of mandatory AA. Uh, I think that that happens a lot. Uh, there's a lot of court referrals. There's a lot of times that somebody goes to court and the judge mandates that they go to 12 AA meetings, you know, something like that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly in favor of that because, one, it comes over as punitive, you know, when punishing you by making you go to AA meetings. Uh, it tends to evoke a lot of resistance and resentment on the part of the person who's being told they got to go to AA meetings. You know, it just evokes a lot of resistance. Um, and it sort of is contrary to the idea that you have to be attracted to this. Uh, that's why in that other study we talked about a while ago, where they measured somebody's readiness to begin with, which didn't predict the outcome because their readiness changed once they got involved in, in going to AA. So it became a program of attraction, you can say, you know, and that's, and that's why they, they did better and they stuck with it. But so I'm not particularly in favor of mandating uh, AA. I've talked to people and I've done trainings uh, where clinicians have told me that, you know, they have, they have to, they have to deal with people who are mandated into treatment. And it's very difficult. They say they have these, these, these guys and these women come in and they're just resentful. They don't want to be there. Uh, they, they say, can you, sign this, can you sign this thing saying I went to the meeting and stuff like that? So I don't think that's what AA was ever all about. And unfortunately, uh, I think that my experience is that courts do that because they don't know what else to do. So... You know, uh, the, the, a prosecutor or a judge may not have any idea what else to do, so they they say, "Well, make this guy go to make this woman go to twelve AA meetings." Yeah, maybe they just hear that, you know, it's it's the best way for people to find sobriety, and they say, "Okay, we're going to make you do that." Well, I think they don't know what else to do, and they so they hope they hope that that's going to help. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of it because I think that uh, it just creates a lot of resentment uh, and resistance. Maybe some people, maybe it's true, maybe some people will go and they'll decide that they want to stick with it, but a lot of people don't like it. There is a phrase in 12-step meetings that you have to hit rock bottom before you can recover. And there was some studies, or maybe one study that I read about in your book that talked about that 12-step programs do not work better for those with more severe drinking or drugging problems. Um, that it mm -hmm. just it comes back to the stuff we've talked about earlier, you know, um, your level of identification, level of involvement, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the, the rock-bottom phrase? No, I think the research doesn't support it. Uh, and... Uh, that was one of the outcomes of, of that Project Match study that was where TSF was, was compared to cognitive behavioral and motivational treatment. One of the hypotheses that the researchers started out with, which was pretty reasonable, is they thought that 12-step facilitation would work only, would better with only people with severe drinking problems. That, you know, people who had hit rock bottom, those are the people who needed AA but people with less severe problems didn't need AA and they would do better with like cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, what, what they found out is it didn't make a difference uh, that the 12-step facilitation was equally effective with people who had more moderate drinking problems than severe problems. Now, all of them, that said, all of them did have a drinking problem, but not all of them were like severe. So what, it found, what the research suggests is that uh, if you have an, a substance, an alcohol use disorder, it doesn't have to be severe rock bottom for you to benefit. You know, you can you can start to benefit by 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 quitting sooner. Uh, in fact, it might work better for you if if you don't wait until you're really at rock bottom. There's another acronym you mentioned in your book. Um, 
M-A-A-E-Z, making AA easier. Do you want right. to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's again another study, uh, which, which also you might call another therapeutic intervention, like 12-step facilitation and the intensive referral one. Uh, this one was done by uh, 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 researcher Leanne Cascudis at Stanford. And what she did, again, instead of just recommending AA, she had, uh, I think, it's six or eight sessions where the focus was on getting the clients with the alcohol use disorder, whether it was severe or moderate, uh, educating them about AA, uh, encouraging them to go to go some meetings and then come back to group therapy and talk about what their experience was like. And then she added another wrinkle, which is that she recruited people who completed her program and, uh, and went to AA, and she would invite them back for the last two sessions. And they would sit in on the last two sessions, and they would then share their experience about, you know, what it was like for them to go to meetings. And so, so they not only were encouraged, uh, educated about AA and encouraged to give it a try, but then they'd have people who, who graduated the program, if you will, come back and talk about their experience and how much it was helpful to them. And again, she had she found very very good outcome as compared to a treatment that didn't didn't emphasize AA that way. Okay, yeah, so yeah, so it, seems, right back it just to seems English. that yeah, it seems that that, you know, these active treatments where the therapist is much more involved in explaining fellowship, encouraging it, uh, trying to talk about resistance or ambivalence, uh, encouraging like one step at a time, you know. Uh, you know, I always, at, when I'm doing training, I say, you know, if, if you can get the reluctant client to go to one meeting a week, that's great, you know. Start out with one meeting a week. If, if they were drinking seven days a week, and now when they come in and you ask them how many uh, have people who are sober this whole week and say if you have eight clients and six of them raise their hands and then you say well how many had one drink a week and one person raises their hand I would say that's progress that's what we're looking for you know so you want to encourage them to be getting involved in a fellowship cutting down on their substance use you know you want to you want to encourage progress some people have this attitude, by the way, that if you drink, you're going to get kicked out of an AA meeting. You know, and that never happens. Yeah, yeah. I have not seen that happen. <laughs> so, um, the only if requirement for membership to, is a desire to stop. In, yeah, if someone comes into an AA meeting and said they had a drink, the, the group will generally be supportive and say, thanks, I'm glad you're here. Absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of groups will say, you know, we're glad you're here, but we ask you not to share during this meeting. Oh, right. But, um, and, and some meetings I've been to, you know, we even let them share. And just because mm -hmm. we, want, we want to show them they're welcome, you know, no matter what. Right. Welcome back. Yeah. You sent me a, a chart while preparing for this podcast, and yeah. I want to hear you talk about that chart. Sure. Can you can you show it or not? I don't know if I could show it. Uh, let me see. Oh. Oh, I can tell you about what it what, what it shows. I, well, here's here's what I'll do is I can show it when I'll pull it up for me to see, and then I can also show it on the the video version of the podcast. Sounds good. Sounds good. So. You want me to talk about it now? Yeah, yep. Sure. The, the reason that that's so important is that, I, as I said, that after that first project match, there was a lot of research done on AA. And specifically, there was a lot of more interest in, uh, you know, the, the program I developed called 12-step facilitation um, as compared to other treatments. Okay, so there was a lot of interest in it suddenly and a lot of studies done. And like, you know, and some of those are there in my book, okay? Uh, 
But what happened was that in uh, 2020, a group of researchers decided to, again, sort of like I did in the book, but what they did is they wanted to pull together all this research on 12-step facilitation in AA and see what did all that research say about 12-step facilitation in Alcoholics Anonymous. And specifically, what did it say about it compared to these other treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy? So they wanted to, they undertook this, what's called a Cochrane review. Uh, it's considered kind of the gold standard in evaluating medical or psychological treatments. It's a very, very rigorous process, a very demanding process to go through this kind of review. And so uh, there were three researchers. One was John Kelly, he was a professor at Harvard. Uh, there was Keith Humphreys, a professor at Stanford, and a woman psychologist in Italy. And they were, they conducted the study. And so uh, it's very important because, again, before that, there was uh, still a lot of skepticism even in the professional community. Uh, did AA work? Uh, did 12-step facilitation and combined with AA work? Was, were other approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy either just as good, if not better? Uh, so they were able to pull together um, a total of 27 studies, 27 what's called these randomized clinical trials that would, where, 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 where subjects were recruited and they were randomly assigned to one treatment or another. One treatment with 12-step facilitation, and the other one might be cognitive behavioral therapy or another treatment approach, okay? And uh, they were randomized, and also they were what's called manualized, like 12-step facilitation is a manualized treatment, okay? The therapist follows a manual that guides them to sessions, okay? It's not exactly a cookbook, uh, but it's manualized. And it's very important that the therapist follow that because otherwise therapy can just sort of wander. You know, it can get out of control. Uh, the therapist isn't in control of the session. Uh, the therapist doesn't have an agenda. But when it's manualized, the therapist has an agenda when they walk into the session, okay? And they're following a format. And so these 27 studies were all like that. So not only 12 self-facilitation was manualized, but the cognitive behavioral therapy was manualized, for example, okay? So the therapists were all following a manualized approach. Um, and they found 27 studies like that, which accounted for uh, 10,500 subjects, which is a lot of subjects. So they were able to identify 27 of these randomized clinical trials that included over 10,000 subjects. So that's the kind of comprehensive study that the Cochrane Review goes through. And then they analyzed all the results from those studies in terms of how severe were the problems, uh, how many people stayed abstinent, uh, how, how, how many of those uh, 10,500 had significant improvements in terms of their drinking, okay, how many were totally abstinent, and so forth. So there's a lot of measures uh, that were included. And, and their conclusion from doing that comprehensive review was that AA and TSF was significantly more effective than any of those other treatments. And it was also more cost effective uh, because, uh, well, first of all, AA is free. Uh, and so once you go through 12-step facilitation, like that study in Kaiser Permanente, they went through 12 weeks of treatment and then they were on their own. Uh, so with 12-step facilitation, the same thing. If you go through TSF, then you're on your own. But again, AA plus TSF was found to be really significantly more, more effective than things like cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy. Plus it was more cost effective, you know, than, than any of those other treatments. So that, that was kind of a shocker to the, to the professional community, to be honest with you. That was published when the Cochrane Report came out showing that. It sort of rocked a lot of people's world, to be honest with you, because again, 
all those people, I have nothing against cognitive behavioral therapy, by the way. It's, I have nothing against it, uh, or motivational enhancement therapy. In fact, I use some of those strategies in 12-step facilitation. But the bottom line is that they're just not as effective, and they're just not as cost-effective. And so, again, I, the reaction that I heard from people were, was there was some kind of shock involved in that. Because if people were really advocates of cognitive behavioral therapy, now suddenly they're confronted with this comprehensive research that shows that it just isn't as effective. Yeah, so another treatment option um, in more recent times for people recovering from opiate addiction has been uh, medically assisted treatment, suboxone, mm -hmm. methadone. Do you know um, if there's studies that take that stuff into account as well? No, this, this study was focusing, the, the Cochrane report was focusing on uh, drinking, on alcohol abuse. Uh, and uh, on, a, on a clinical level, uh, I'm an advocate of medication-assisted treatment. For example, with uh, alcohol, uh, I'm, not only do I advocate going to a fellowship like AA, or Women's Sobriety or whatever, or Gnostic AA, <coughs> but I'm very much open to working with uh, physicians, and there are some people who can benefit from medication in addition to going to AA. So there's one, you know, there's something called, hold on a second, <coughs> Excuse me. There's a medication called naltrexone, uh, and um, it's been found to be effective in cutting down on alcohol cravings. And some people, <coughs> despite their best of intentions to stay sober, they may even uh, be going to AA, but they have just an overwhelming urge to drink. And, you know, they struggle with it. Um, and my point of view is I'm very practical. If naltrexone can help you, uh, in addition to going AA, uh, go for it. You know, use it. Take it every day to help you. Uh, there's another one called Vivitrol, which is, which is naltrexone, but it's injected. And it's injected, it's only once a month. And um, the advantage it has is that it lasts a month, whereas naltrexone you have to take it every day. And if you don't take it every day, it's not going to work as well. But Vivitrol, you go to a doctor once a month and you get an injection and it lasts for a whole month. Um, the difference is Vivitrol is a lot more expensive and a lot of insurance companies don't want to pay for it. There's also a much more powerful one called Antabuse or Disulfiram. If you take that and you drink, you're going to get sick. So <coughs> a lot of people don't like it for that very reason, obviously. but. I've had clients who used it because they felt that their drinking problem was so severe that they were, they were going to AA, but it was day in and day out they were struggling with, uh, with, with urges to drink. So I'm, I'm in favor of uh, medication-assisted treatment. I think if it helps you to stay sober, in addition to going to AA, go for it. Uh, there may be some people in meetings who are opposed to it, but then I say, well, find a meeting where they're not opposed to it. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of meetings out there. In terms of the opioid epidemic, I feel the same way that, for, for example, Narcan saves lives. You know, if you someone's overdosing, by all means, use Narcan. Keep them alive. Keep them from dying. Um, I think it's good that responders, first responders, carry Narcan with them. They should all carry Narcan with them. Um, and so I believe in that. And Suboxone, uh, uh, which is buprenorphine, uh, can help with opioid addiction. It, it's sort of like there used to be methadone, if you're, if you're uh, addicted to, to opioids. Methadone was an alternative, okay? Uh, I'm fine with that, but I also support going to meetings because uh, people who are on methadone or on suboxone, it can help them to stay clean, but they still say that they don't feel the same because it's an opioid. <laughs> you know, it's still taking an opioid, and it still kind of clouds your experience a little bit. People who are on suboxone say, 
I'm glad that I'm, I'm no longer popping oxycodone 10 times a day, but I still don't feel normal. So I'm, I'm in favor of MAT as part of an overall treatment program, but my goal is to help, help people get clean and sober. I've, there are people who have quit heroin, and they like it. They like being clean. They don't, they don't want to go on methadone. And I think the same thing would apply to Suboxone. Uh, the problem we have to, 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 to look at it from perspective is that we seem to be, as a society, willing to promote things like methadone and Narcan and Suboxone, but we're not willing to support treatment so much, okay? Because comparatively, those things are cheap. And but you know what someone needs if they're if they have an overdose and Narcan saves their lives is what are they going to do next? You know where can they go for help? Uh, and that's where we're falling short. We just don't have enough treatment facilities. Yeah, yeah. I wish there was a a better solution, but I I, I mean I guess the better solution is getting more treatment facilities, but that's. I guess that's not too straightforward. No, but it, I think it's. I think that ultimately we're going to have to deal with that. Uh, we're going to have to have more programs that are aimed at helping helping people to lead a clean, uh, sober lifestyle. Okay, and give them the support that's necessary, including medication if necessary. But along with the medication, things like like therapy group support, helping them like get involved, and we talked about you know conversation, involved in in fellowships that support where people support each other, staying clean and sober. That it's not going to work for everybody, but if it can work for thirty or forty percent of people, that's a huge savings. That's a lot of lives being saved. And what I'm worried about is that um, Narcan, for example is good for saving someone's life if they're having an opioid overdose. Uh, but what's happening, I don't know if you're aware of it recently, is that uh, fentanyl is becoming much more prevalent than, than say, oxycodone. Fent and fentanyl doesn't respond to Narcan, okay? And now there's also these tranquilizers, these animal tranquilizers that are becoming popular, something called Tranq, T-R-A-N-Q. And it's, it's, that's becoming popular. And it too doesn't respond to Narcan. So if somebody's overdosing on those things, Narcan isn't going to save them. So, you know, we're, we're in this conundrum. So we've got a medication that can help somebody with an opioid overdose. Well, what happens if they're now using fentanyl? Um, and we're having a lot, a lot of fentanyl deaths, certainly here in Connecticut, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I did not actually did not know that that um, that Narcan did not help with a fentanyl overdose. I thought that um, I thought that fentanyl is just so much more powerful that that sometimes no, it, it could help it, 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 it depending do on anything the dose. With the animal tranquilizer also, and that's becoming wow. more popular, unfortunately. The other thing is that just to throw another wrinkle in here, that research has shown that uh, more than about fifty percent are people who are using uh, fentanyl are also using methamphetamine. Um, and again, the Narcan doesn't touch that. So if somebody has an overdose on, on an opioid and you revive them with Narcan, they're going to be, they're going to come, uh, they're, they're going to be conscious, but they're going to be agitated because they're going to be under the influence of the meth. And again, the Narcan doesn't do anything about the meth. And so you've got about 50% of people who are taking both. And again, I'm not opposed to those medications at all. My point is that we're, we're, we're taking the cheap route by, you know, supporting only the drugs and not providing more treatment facilities, which admittedly are going to be more expensive. Uh, and we also have to, in those treatment facilities, where people go in for treatment, we have to promote <laughs> like the research we're talking about today, we have to promote active involvement in some kind of fellowship as a way of staying clean and sober. 
You can't just send somebody in for treatment for six or eight sessions, and then they're going to walk out the door, and they have no fellowship to turn to. Okay, so what's going to happen? They're going to relapse. Yeah. So, Dr. Joe, we're coming to the end of the hour, and I was just wondering if there was huh. anything that I did not ask you about that you would wanted to mention. No, I'm impressed with how much you, how much time you spent reading the book, and how 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 knowledgeable you are about it. Um, <clears throat> one more thing, probably, is that uh, the the chapter on how uh, alcohol, in particular, but other drugs affect the brain. And and one thing we know is that about 50% of people who go in for treatment have some cognitive deficit that's related to drinking or substance use. In other words chronic cannabis abuse or opioid abuse or alcohol abuse affects your brain. And so, it, it, for example, it clouds your judgment, it clouds your thinking. And that's, again, probably one reason why we need to provide treatment that's structured, that can help people, because once they, when they enter treatment, their thinking isn't clear. Uh, if they can stay sober for six or nine months, the brain can heal itself. So the cognitive deficits they had, like following directions, making decisions, uh, staying organized, improve over time. But when they walk into treatment, they're not. They're not very good at making decisions. Their they're, 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 they're thinking is clouded. So it's another reason why we need to support treatment, because we have to understand that when someone enters treatment, uh, they're not only detoxing, but their brain has to recover from the effects of chronic cannabis abuse or alcohol abuse. And those effects are real. So that's another point I just want to make, that we, we shouldn't ignore the fact that this does affect your brain, and that, that that needs some time to heal, too. Yeah, that is that's a great point. Okay, well, I'm going to add this has been to the a, show. Go ahead, sorry. No, I think I really appreciate the time. It's been, I think, uh, very instructive. I think the, the, your questions have been great, and I hope that the audience learned something from listening to our discussion of uh, what we know about AA and why it works. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say, I will post links to your website and the book um, and that chart we talked about in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd want me to throw down there? No, that would be great. I think I think people can check my website out because they uh, there's more information there that I post and you know and links to. To different articles and so forth, uh, that would be great. Um, and also, probably you know, it would be good for them to take a take a look at that chart and see. It's a very visual uh, depiction of just how much more effective twelve-step facilitation and AAR. All right, great. Well, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me today, and I I think that people are going to really enjoy this and, and take a lot from it. Good. And congratulations on your own recovery. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you later.